Well, uh, let me just say a couple of things before I crack into this, which uh, one of them is, if you weren't here at the start, welcome to Gospel Church. It's great to have you here with us today. Uh, the other one is, if you uh, would like me to take my mask off, thank you, Jeff. Um, that's probably, I'm going to regret that at the end. Uh, <laughs> the other one is, if you, yeah, it's probably not. Uh, uh. <sighs> Let's move on. Um, if you uh, would like a Bible to read along with, with us here today and you don't have one at the moment, uh, there's a, a big old stack of them on that shelf at the back there next to the sound booth. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one of them. It is yours for life. Congratulations. Um, no, it's our, our gift to anyone who comes here and wants a Bible and doesn't have one is, is you, can, you can take one home with you. Um, now, we're continuing on in our series today called The Peaks. Uh, it is, as Rick has ably introduced us to, a series going through the big story of the Bible from Genesis through to Revelation, seeing that there is one God, one hero, one story. Uh, and so I'm, I'm pretty sure I've got that written in a different order there. But anyway, um, it's one of the great turning points in my faith, and I think Rick was trying to say something similar to this, was when I saw... God's book isn't, you know, and when, when I say God's book, what I mean is history isn't one, uh, isn't a whole bunch of different disparate stories and bits and bobs. God's been working out one great plan in all of history. Uh, and it's a marvellous thing. It's an amazing thing. It's a thing that he draws us into for our own good and our own growth. And so that's why we're in this today and why we're going through this series. And we're in part three today. Uh, and where we left off last week, humanity's plight was desperate and the future seemed bleak. Last week we looked at the fall in Genesis chapter 3. But today we come to a turning moment in God's big story. And the moment comes with a man, Abram, who, who God will eventually rename Abraham. Uh, and for the sake of simplicity, we're just going to call him Abraham today. Uh, in many ways, this is the pivotal moment of the entire Old Testament. In the thousands of years between the fall in Genesis 3 all the way up to the arrival of Jesus at the beginning of the New Testament, this moment and this man tower as the most significant progress in the story of who God is and what he's doing and who we are in the light of his grace. And really at the core of what happens here in this story is just that, grace. You see, uh, God has indicated previous to this passage, previous to Abram arriving on the scene, uh, he's indicated to Adam and Eve that he is going to one day defeat the serpent through a, an offspring of theirs, but, but in cloudy language, in, 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 without, a, a clear, uh, without a great clarity there. Kind of like that sentence. Uh, and he'd, he'd promised Noah that he was ne never again going to wreak the same destruction through a flood. Uh, as he ha did in the, in the Great Flood. But as all those, all those moments of promise have been happening, the tide of sin has just seemed overwhelming. And the earth as a whole has seemed to be becoming more and more entrenched in our separation from God. As we covered at the end of last week, by the time of the Flood, humanity's sin is described in these terms that kind of cover that it was everyone all of the time in every way to the very depths of our hearts and the flood uh, which you know is this enormous pouring out of judgment does little to nothing to mitigate that noah immediately after the flood falls into sin 
Humanity as a whole dives headlong into sin and self-centered pride as the population gets back up again. Immediately we go, hey, let's build a tower for our own glory because we're so great. Uh, and, and again, God intervenes and scatters us, uh, this time not with a flood, but with languages. He diversifies the languages of the earth to scatter humanity. And so divisions in humanity grow, and down at the roots of those divisions, our division from God becomes more and more drastic, more and more clear, as it becomes more and more clear that we can't remedy the problem ourselves. But today we discover, as Abraham enters the picture, that God's intention ultimately is not to scatter, but to gather. God's intention ultimately is to have grace on his people. Even though our sin is overwhelming and overpowering, even though we can't do anything about the divide that stands between us and God, that divide which ultimately destroys everything, sours every relationship, brings death and destruction and sorrow into the world, even though we can't do anything about it, in the, in the true story of Abraham, we discover that God is the God who promises to do something about it himself. <clears throat> not because of our goodness, not because of our deservingness, but because of his sheer grace. And on one hand, Abraham isn't a particularly remarkable guy. If you, if you read the Bible, the you know, kind of Genesis 12 through 23-ish, and, and read about what sort of things Abraham does in that passage, you don't, you don't come out with an astoundingly positive impression of this guy. He, he was the, the son of a guy named Terah, uh, who, and, and, and Abraham had a wife named Sarai. She'd eventually re, been renamed Sarah. Uh, he actually messes up quite a bit. Uh, when God says, go this way, he often goes that way. Uh, he lies outrightly and, and painfully and, and to other people's detriment to avoid trouble in his own life. Uh, it even comes to light late in the story that uh, Sarah is actually kind of Abraham's sister, which is a bit of an awkward moment. Um, there's, there's, there's some real blemishes in the life of Abraham. So Abraham personally is not that remarkable or glorious a guy. But what sets Abraham apart are these two things. First, foremost, Abraham is chosen by God. God's sheer generosity, his grace toward Abraham, sets Abraham apart, not because of anything in Abraham. God makes great promises to Abraham that he will be a great nation. In fact, that nations and kings will come from him that his descendants will inherit the land that God has for them. And even more significantly than that, that through him, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And there we discover something earth-shatteringly significant about Abraham. God intends not just to bless him. God's interaction, interaction with Abraham is not just to bless him and not even just to bless his kids. God intends to bless and to pour out blessing on every family, a blessing that will reach to every corner of the earth because of Abraham and his descendant. And we'll talk more about uh, what we see about God's blessing a little later, but then the second thing that we find about Abraham that sets him apart is that Abraham trusts God. Not perfectly, by all means, but the one redeeming quality, really, if you were to boil it down, of Abraham is faith. 
And this is, this is where we, we join our reading from this morning, Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham again. Now, this isn't the first interaction of God with Abraham. Uh, in Genesis 12, Abraham received the promises of God and he was called to go out from his father's household to where God would lead him. And Genesis 15 is years after that point. And Abram, who was already 70 years old when he was called, uh, is beginning to become a bit concerned, we get the impression, understandably, because God has promised to do great things through his descendants, but thus far, he has no descendants. That seems like a bit of a glaring omission in the plan. And so God comes to him again, and he makes an astounding addition to the promise. He takes Abram outside at night and he shows him the sky and he says, count the stars if you can. You ever tried doing that? It is a deeply fruitless exercise. Um, So shall your offspring be, he says to him. Abram's descendants won't just exist, they will be too numerous to count. And then in Genesis 15, 6, we get this one little line that demonstrates the basis of the new relationship of humanity with God. It says, and he, that is, and Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham hears God's good words to him, his promises to him, And he trusts that what God says is true and what God says is good. Now, if you were with us last week, do you see a bit of a contrast there? Genesis 3, the snake comes to Eve and he convinces her that God's, he twists God's words and he convinces her that God's words aren't true and God's words aren't good. And she believes him. And in comes the first sin, right? In comes sin into all of creation, But now Abram trusts God at his word. He trusts that God's words to him are true and are good. And we get this incredible, miraculous thing that when Abraham trusts God, has faith in God, even though Abraham is a sinner, God counts him righteous. He counts him right with God. We see restoration for the first time. By faith, we see the beginnings through faith that hopes in a promise of the restoring, the restoring of what was destroyed at the fall. God is building a relationship once again with humanity, do you see? And it is built by faith in him and his goodness. In fact, do you see, if, if you read, if, if you get a chance this week, and please do take the time, sit down, read the narrative about Abraham, read 12 through 22. Uh, of Genesis. Uh, and, and, and notice how many times there, and if you even go to the end of Genesis and read about the other patriarchs as well, you'll see again and again and again this creation language coming out. The language of, I'm going to bless you and multiply you. And you see language that will describe Canaan, the promised land, like a garden of Eden. And you'll see God planting his people in his place under his blessing to multiply and fill the earth and we kind of hear that and we go oh that sounds familiar doesn't it it's like a a a new creation or a repeated creation moment but this faith by which we step into this 
becomes the foundation of the salvation of everyone who will be saved, ever. And what puts a person in right relationship with God is faith, and faith alone. And this is a reality that continues through the Old Testament, even though God calls an ethnic people, Israel, into a special relationship with him to come and follow him, it is those who trust in God uh, who are the children of Abraham, who are the true Israel. Romans 4.12 says that uh, the true descendants of Abraham from among the circumcised, that is from among Israel, uh, were only those who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And this is a reality that becomes foundational then, not just in the Old Testament, but for the New Testament and for us even to today. Faith and faith alone is the heart of a right relationship between humanity and God between you and God, between us and God. And it must be said, faith is fully free. Faith simply means trusting him. When a person is saved by faith, they're not saved by anything that they do. They're saved because God is faithful to them. He saves them. But paradoxically a bit, uh, or in a way it might seem a bit paradoxical, Although faith means we are saved by nothing that we do, because faith is trust that God's promises are true and are good, faith calls us to leave everything behind in favour of trusting the promises of God. And we see this so powerfully in the story of Abraham, don't we? Because Abraham trusts God. Abraham is willing to lose. Like You could see it as Abraham just gives up his past, his present and his future. He's willing to put everything on the line in favour of trusting the promises of God. Hebrews 11 says that by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. When God called Abraham out in Genesis 12, the call was to leave his past and to leave his present behind. The first words of God to Abraham in the Bible are go, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And then having given that command, God gives him the promise as well. He says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless all of the families of the earth through you. Do you see how huge that is? Abraham receives the promises, but if he really trusts, if he really has faith, then he will put down all of the security of his life, all of the peace and all of the, the possibilities of, of living with his, his family, his, his parents, his, his father's house. He has to lay down his heritage and leave in order to follow God. He has to lay down everything he's doing. And it's not like, you know, we, we don't get much on Abraham before this, but we could well assume that Abraham wasn't twiddling his thumbs thinking, well, God's going to come any day now, right? Like Abraham was living a life where he had lots of stuff going on probably and God comes to him and says, go, leave this. Come and follow me and trust that my promises are better. Do You see, trusting the promise necessarily meant leaving everything else behind for Abraham. And not just that, faith in God's promises is faith in God's promises about 
everything. And so faith calls us to be willing to lose uh, even the blessings that he's given us in the past. We need to be ready to lose them in the here and now, even lose the things that would, we think would build our future. After Abraham had left, after he'd followed God for years, decades, after God had fulfilled the promise, this is going past Genesis 15, uh, the promise of a son in Isaac, and after God had specifically promised that through Isaac the rest of the promises would be fulfilled, God tested Abraham's faith in an unimaginable way. You know, we get to Genesis chapter 22, and God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, the son he loves. Mm. Can you imagine it? And Abraham goes to do it. He takes Isaac to the place that God commands. He ties him to the altar. He prepares to sacrifice his own son. And at the last minute, God intervenes and he says, don't do it. And instead provides a ram for the sacrifice. And again, the author of Hebrews helps us here. He writes that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Through Isaac would the promises continue. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And although there we see ultimately that God's will is to provide the sacrifice, to provide for us so that we don't have to die, we don't have to carry the judgment of our sin. Just like Abraham, trusting in God does call us to be ready to leave everything else in order to follow him and to live by faith in him. True faith in God is faith that he is better than anything else. And that his promises are worth having at the expense of anything and everything else. So true faith in God is ready to put down our past and to put down our present and to put down our future. And instead, trust that God's will is better and his promises are better than the things that I've hoped in. And it's just as true of us today if we live by faith in God. Trusting that God's promises are good and true would lead us to set aside the comforts of our lives, the things that we cling to, in order to follow him in living a life that shows other people his goodness. You know, for some, that genuinely means a bit of an Abraham moment. God's not going to promise you a country. I'm just, just like a, a physical nation in this world. Uh, but for some, it means leaving the comfort of the place where you grew up stepping out into what God is calling you to. You know, it's funny, if I, can, if I can share this, for us, it's actually kind of meant both leaving and coming. Uh, that's our experience of this. When, when, when Crystal, my wife, and I uh, left South Australia, we did that because we trusted that where we were going was where God was leading us, and that was the path that led me to train to be a pastor and to work in that, and there were lots of other steps on that road as well, but I won't explain them all to you now. When we left South Australia, we loved South Australia. Like we had, we had a, a group of friends that felt like a family. Um, we, had, we felt really loved and really at home where we were, but we felt that God was leading us out to the Northern Territory for us. Um, 
and it was exactly the same when we when we left from the Northern Territory to Queensland. And, and, and don't hear me boasting that, oh, look at John and Crystal, they obey the promises of God and so on and so forth. Uh, I, I have no reason to boast because everything that God has led us to has been everything that is for our best. You see, so if I, if I, if I boast in following God in this, then really I'm just boasting in acting in self-interest, which, I don't know, we can all say that to some extent. We trusted God's promise was better, and it is. That's just been our experience of it. But ultimately for us, it also went back the other way. Uh, when we believed that God was leading us back to South Australia, back here, uh, we had a, a great church community in Brisbane. Uh, we had dear, dear friends. There were good job and ministry opportunities coming up. But God convinced us that he was leading us to come back to South Australia. That was just how it was. And so we had to follow we had to trust and lay it down and, and, and walk in what he was promising, knowing that his promises are better. And it would be wrong to hear me saying that and to hear me saying that in some way uh, we are special. Uh, the, the call to live by faith is a call to be willing to leave everything to follow God because you believe he's better. It, it was that way for the disciples in the New Testament. It was that way for all Christians in the New Testament. Again and again, the Bible calls believers to be changed by what they've believed, to be transformed, to l lay down the lesser things, to pick up the greater things. James says it, Paul says it. So let, let me ask you, is that your experience of faith if you're a Christian? Because there's a, a real chance that we settle for, for a mediocre faith. There's a version of faith that's more informed by the world than by the Bible. A version of faith that defines faith as having made a choice uh, to, to kind of put your trust in Jesus and, and invite him into your heart and zickety split, you know, it's done. And, and you basically go back to your life exactly as it was. But that's not the Bible's faith. That's not... Abraham's faith. The Bible's faith says God offers something better, something infinitely better. So trust him and leave everything else behind to gain more of him. You know, it doesn't have to be a move from one place to another. You can leave everything behind while staying exactly where you are. In fact, that's probably what we should, we should see as the norm really. So if you're a younger person, um, perhaps, perhaps even someone who's in school, uh, where a life without God might have led you in another way, might have meant doing your best to be kind of popular, to, to be loved, working for a successful life, kind of aiming for that key career, a, a life of faith would call you to be ready to set those things aside in favour of understanding that you're a child of God and so you're a missionary of God where you are. A life of faith might call you to be less popular because you're willing to be open about your faith and that's not typically a thing that everyone loves. You're willing to tell people good news even if it gives you a reputation. A life of faith... Uh, might call you when you do well at school to give glory to God in that moment rather than to yourself, 
to acknowledge, well, if there are good things in me, they're good things that he's put in me and given me. And so thank you, God, rather than aren't I great? You know, if you're a working adult, um, where, where a life without God may have meant working for the paycheck, building that career, building a comfortable life for yourself, finding yourself a good wife or a good husband, and generally living that kind of white picket fence life, a life of faith, although it might involve all of those things, right? None of those things are evil. It might involve you setting them aside because you know where God is leading you and that that's not it. It might mean just having less because you give more, because you know the God and you have faith in the God who has been deeply generous with you. And so you can be led to be a deeply generous person who cares for the poor, who shares their table with people who are lonely, because you know the God who brought you in when you were far apart from him, when you were on your own and under judgment. You know, it might mean moving. It might mean going to Bible college or training for vocational ministry. But equally, it might mean setting that dream aside for some people for the sake of reaching the mission field that is right in front of you. Rural South Australia is, I'm convinced, a place of real gospel drought. We, we need gospel workers in the country. People... And not, not I, don't, I don't mean pastors, I mean pastors, but I mean more than pastors. I mean people who are willing to live out the gospel, be the gospel rain in the gospel drought, so to speak. Speak it in their context, reveal it with their lives and through the love of the church and, and to pray that more would come to believe where we are here. You know, if you're an older person, let's, let's follow this through to the end of life, where, where a, a life without God may have meant a quiet you know, comfy retirement uh, with some good books or good TV shows and a, and a nice house by the sea, faith may lead you to spend your retirement serving. Serving in your church, using that extra time that you have to befriend lost sinners, to care for the poor, to be a, a blessing to the needy, all because this is a life of faith. Trusting that God has promised you so much, something so much better than kind of a 20-year break at the end. Because like Abraham, you have something better than a comfy chair and a good TV show to look forward to. You have something, you have an inheritance better than a big house by the sea to look forward to. So faith leads you to spend those last years living out your hope in something better and of course there are a thousand other ways actually millions of other ways that faith in the promises of God may call you to leave behind what you have but the one thing that faith in God will never do is leave you the same because like Abraham when we come to faith in God and in his promises we are children of the fall we have been living as children of the fall, children of a broken world, separated from God, in need of transformation. And by faith, he transforms us for our good. And it's also because when we come to faith in God, we have until that point, like Abraham, like everyone, been trusting in something other than God. 
We've been hoping in other things. We've been hoping in all sorts of other things. We've been deciding what is good for us. Like Eve in the garden, we've been self-legislators. But when we come to faith in God, we believe that, that He is better and His promises and His way and His hope we find in Him are better than the things that we'd pursued. So we lay it all aside in favour of trusting Him. Let me ask you just outright, what does faith in God lead you to lay aside today? Have a wrestle with that question this week. It's one we should go on wrestling through. This isn't a one-off sort of experience we're talking about here. And all of this, all that we've looked at so far, really just leaves us with one enormously glaring question. Why does faith save anyone? And the answer, in short, is that faith saves because God is faithful. God is faithful, and in his faithfulness, he will do what is needed to rescue those who put their faith in him. Come back with me to, to Genesis chapter 15. Um, and, and, and God's made this promise of, of the land to Abraham. He's promised to establish him in a new place. And, and by the way, that... Uh, that land looks back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, we, we kind of mentioned this a little bit before. Do you see the, the pattern here coming out again that, that God is going to uh, call a new man in a new place? He's going to plant him in a new place under his blessing to multiply. Uh, and this pl- promise of land also necessarily looks forward to a greater place than the bordered nation of Israel. Uh, a day when the blessed place of God will be everywhere will fill the whole earth and that must be evident because at the same time that God promises a really quite narrow limited strip of land to Abraham and his descendants he also promises that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars of heaven chapter 13 he promises that they'll be as numerous as the dust of the earth and you know if you thought counting the stars was a fruitless exercise I don't think, like, I couldn't take a handful of dust and count it. There is more than one handful. But having made the promise, Abraham asks God, Oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And this incredibly significant thing happens that is also incredibly foreign to our kind of modern ears. God tells Abraham to get a bunch of animals and cut them in halves. If you're from Peter, sorry. And an ancient reader would have heard this though, and they would have understood what was going on here. This is a a covenant ceremony that's being set up. And the way an ancient covenant ceremony worked was that you cut the animals in halves, and then both of the parties in the covenant ceremony would walk down the middle between the halves of the animals. And they would, they, sorry, they would make their promises and then they'd walk down the middle. And the message was this really clear message of, let this be what happens to me if I don't keep my covenant promises to you. Let me be like the animal severed in two. And understanding that, we can see that this is such a significant moment. Because in God's covenant ceremony, 
with Abraham. In verse 17 of chapter 15, Abraham sees a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces of the animals. And Abraham stands on the side and watches. Now, the fire represents God. This is a repeated image, especially in, in these first five books of the Old Testament. The, the ones written by Moses, you know, we get the flaming bush and we get the fire of God at Mount Sinai and we get the pillar of fire leading God's people in the wilderness. So, so the presence of God passes between the parts of the animals. Do you see how this differs from the traditional covenant ceremony? Only God goes through it. And so God is saying very clearly to Abraham in terms that Abraham would have understood, I take it upon myself to see my promises fulfilled to you. It is an unconditional covenant. And it is a covenant that God promises at his own cost. And that's so powerfully significant because although these promises are in part fulfilled in the nation of Israel, when Abraham has some descendants and they and they acquire some land and some of the blessings of God, ultimately it is fulfilled fully in Jesus. Ultimately, the promises of God to take the bloody costs promised in this ceremony, the costs of making the descendants of Abraham by faith more numerous than the dust of the earth, is fulfilled by Jesus when he carries the cost and goes to the cross and dies to bless people from every family on earth dies to restore the creation and to one day make God's land and everywhere land. We've, we've hit Hebrews 11 twice today. and We're going to do it one more time. Hebrews 11.39 says, and all these, what it's done is it's listed all of these people, all of the faithful people in the descent of the Old Testament. Not everyone in the Old Testament, but uh, a lot of them, including Abraham, including Sarah. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The us in that sentence is those who have been born again in Jesus, the people of God after the coming of the Messiah. Abraham looked forward to the fact that God would one day fulfill his promises, uh, and knowing it or not, he was trusting in Jesus because it is through Jesus that those promises are and will be fulfilled, not just of a limited kingdom, but of a renewed creation, not just of a limited people, but of a people who are the children of God by faith and are more numerous than can be counted. So we can have faith in God and that faith can save us and it could save Abraham because of Jesus, because of the greatest peak in the mountain range, so to speak. And so we've got kind of two questions to say here. One is, have you put your faith in him? Have you put trust in this one who is the only way to be saved? If you haven't, today's the day. There is only one way to enter into the promises of God, to come away from judgment and into salvation, and it's Jesus. The other question we have to grapple with is if you have 
putting your faith in Jesus, as we've said, is not once off. It's not a, a moment in your life. It is your life. What does faith in the goodness of God's promises and in the goodness of their fulfilment in Jesus call you to lay down? I can't answer that, promise, uh, that question for you, sorry. But it's one well worth grappling with and it's one that it's good to grapple with. Because although it might feel like you're casting aside something good for the sake of something not so good, it is never the case. God's promises are always better. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your great promises to your people. Thank you that although we fell, although we sin, not just as a, not just as a race, but as people, as individuals, we're, we're sinners who turned away from you. Thank you that your intention is to give grace. You love your people. You take the cost for us at your cross and you've rescued us. Lord, I pray for anyone here who hasn't believed in you, that this would be the day that you would stir faith in their hearts, faith in the great promises of God fulfilled in Jesus. Lead us, Lord, lead us to be people who walk by faith, who are ready, ready to lay down the lesser things of this life in order to live for the greater things that you have to come. Lead us to walk with you and walk by your spirit every day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.